Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news for you listeners, all of our episodes are now available on the TuneIn app. All the episodes available there five days early. So download the TuneIn app and listen for free. I'm really excited to say that Lena Arkawi is here and joining us from the Syrian American Council. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So one of the things we always ask people to do is to sort of tell us about their childhood, how they grew up, what was important to them. It helps us to understand not just what you believe, but why you believe what you do. So go for it. Um, so my parents uh, immigrated from Syria, from Damascus, about 50 years ago, and they ended up in Washington, D.C., um, and ended up in Arizona at some point, and that's where I was born. So okay. I grew up most of my life in Arizona. Um, I tried to, um, in the beginning as a child, I, I wanted to be a full-out American girl. Um, so I would, you know, I was really embarrassed that I was, you know, Arab or Muslim. So I would, you know, tell my friends, no, no, I'm, I'm white. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, really? And they'd be like, speak Arabic. I was like, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, as I got older, I got more and more uncomfortable becoming Arab and that Arab identity really, um, strengthened in me by, um, September 11th. I was, uh, in ninth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember, my dad telling me after September 11th is, um, Lena, this is such a tragic thing as, as an American. Um, but now it's going to be very hard for you and all Arabs. And you should look at, you know, trying to make as many Arab friends as you can and have that solidarity with them because this is a very hard time for Arabs and Muslims. Um, and so that was this moment where I, w- I had an identity crisis where I grew up, you know, thinking I'm this all-American girl. My de- you know, my older brother served in the military. You know, we lived such an American life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some cultural differences. I wasn't allowed to spend the night, you know, no boyfriends. Right. Um, but this point where my dad said, you know, try, try to find people be, uh, that are like you because you're not going to be accepted. Before that, though, growing up, were, were most of your friends white? Were any of them Arab? Um, yeah, I mean, the community, but yeah. not in elementary. But that's elementary. like separate from your social yeah, circles, Yeah, like right? in elementary like, school. Yeah. So, yeah, I was the only, um, I guess, Arab of, of Arab descent in, yeah. my, in my grade. Um, I had, you know, white friends, Mexican friends uh, growing up in Arizona. Yeah. But um, it was high school that I was like, wow, like. It really shaped me and, and the things that I do and who I, um, how I identify, you know. So was it, that one of the first times? I, I'm always fascinated by how parents choose to or not to address those kinds of things with their kids because some parents think I don't want to make it a thing, so we're not going to talk about it. And some parents, like it sounds like your dad, make a decision to say we need to talk about this. You need to be aware. Did it surprise you that he did that, or had they always been like that? It was a complete surprise. Um, you know, he has so many American friends, born and raised in America, no roots elsewhere. Um, so we grew up that way. And so when he said that that was the first time where I was like, wow, um, I, I was just shocked. I, I didn't know what to say. And, you know, it wasn't he didn't say, like, don't be friends with your friends, but just be cautious because they might treat you differently now because they're looking at you as as somebody who's you know, from that region of what, you know, the largest terrorist attack that happened in U.S. soil. Mm -hmm. So 
people are going to treat you differently and expect that and just be kind. But just know that like your f- people who are going to fully accept you are going to be people who are experiencing the same suffering as you did um, in the backlash in, in the U.S. And did they treat you differently? No, I, I didn't have I had a couple of run ins, um, but not not too much. Run-ins like what? Like casual kind of off-the-cuff remarks? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I remember one um, uh, one year, one of the students, um, we were joking around, and he crossed the line, and he made a joke like, you know, you can't make a joke with me because you, you're Arab. And he did it as a joke, but it was so much deeper than that. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Because I'm Arab, I can't joke with you. And he's like, you know. And I was like, no, I don't. And it ended up becoming this big, big issue. Um, and, it, and it hit me really hard because I was like, I, I don't see the difference. You know, yeah. like I grew up in this country as well. Um, so, you know. Especially at that at ninth grade is you're really starting to come into your own identity, right? right? Like you're starting to figure out who you are and the things that are important to you. Did it affect... Um, sounds like at least in high school, you know, you're lucky. You didn't have more serious yeah. issues or incidents like that. Did What about in college, on into your early professional life? Was, did you ever come across any of that kind of bigotry or, or, or pushback that your father prepared you for? No, not at all. Um, and I actually had the opposite reaction. So I ended up going from, you know, as a child, I told you, where I rejected being this, this you know, having roots of, of being Arab and Muslim yeah. to this horrible incident that made me go, wow, this is who I am. You know, as, as I am a mix, a beautiful mix between Arab and American. Um, and so especially in college, I really took um, courses um, and I, I soft up, I, I looked after, fr- I looked for friends um, that were, were like me and, and we had, you know, an, all these different communities like, you know, Lebanese, Syrian, you know, Saudi, and we would always get together and, um, yeah. you know, ha- have a good time. But I'm curious when you say friends like you, because up until the point where your father pointed it out to you, you thought all your friends were like you, right. right? You thought you were just like them. They're just like you. What parts of you were you tapping into there when you started developing more Arab or Muslim friends or any of that? What, what, what was that? What, what parts of them were speaking to you? What parts of me? Was it, you know, shared family experiences or cultural traditions? or Because even across a lot of the people you mentioned, a lot of the cultural traditions are very different, right? Like right. Saudi traditions are very different from Syrian traditions, are very different from Pakistani traditions, all of those. So how, it sounds like you found a community. Right. What do you think it was? What did you enjoy about being there? I think it's that feeling of, you're not you're you're comfortable you're not going to be judged you you get each other's jokes you know you you look the same you share the same kind of restrictions and the same foods and the same enjoyments and pleasure and the same you know music um yeah so i, I it connected me to them and what um in college what i really enjoyed was um starting back and learning arabic um, so I started taking courses in Arabic. Did you not speak it at home? So yeah. that was the thing that actually drove my um, 20s. Um, yeah. So I, sp- I chose not to speak it at home. And I would always speak English. And my parents would speak to me in Arabic. And they forced me to go to, you know, Arabic school or Muslim, you know, Islamic yeah. school. And I would push away. And I would say, no, no, this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, 
But again, in college, it was this light bulb where I, I really want to take pride in, in, in my family's roots. And I realized that um, for me, my family was very small. It was just us in Arizona. Um, so I had this loneliness. Um, and I, I would visit my grandma every now and then, mm-hmm. but it was very rare. So I Where saw, was your grandmother? In Damascus. In Damascus. And she's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I only saw her like three or four times in my life. And in college, I realized... I don't even, when I call her, I don't even know how to talk to her. I don't even know how to say, you know, I, I love you. I, I just know like, you know, three or four words to her. And that's pretty much all the conversation I have with this woman. Yeah. And there was a part of me that really hurt. And I felt like I was missing such an opportunity to know my heritage and know my roots. And, you know, so I took it upon myself, like I said, to learn Arabic. And uh, I actually took some Islamic courses, which were... Um, really interesting, like Women in Islam was one of my courses that I really enjoyed. Mm. And I learned it from more of an academic um, standpoint, where as a kid, it was always taught, like, you know, one of the aunties teaches you, and, and right. you know, like, they, they make it's up like, all these... just th- the way we do it, because yeah. we do it this way. Yeah, yeah. and there was no um, basis to what they would tell us, right? They'd be like, you wear a short sleeves t-shirt, and it's like, oh, you're going to hell, you know? <laughs> you're like, why? Where did that come from? <laughs> Where did that come from? And, and they would just make it up, and they would hear it from their parents, and their parents, and their parents. Right. So they would make it up. So when I went to school, and I actually learned about it from the historical um, standpoint, from the, from the academic it really opened my mind. Yeah. And it made me where in the beginning I used to reject it to learning about it from one of my professors. And it was so um, beautiful, you know, of, of um, there's so many things that are really beautiful in it when you when you do study it. Did you find things in your academic study that contradicted things you learned growing up? Like, oh, no, we don't need to do it that way because actually Islam says this. Or, or was it just strengthening everything you've learned? Growing no, up? it was very different. And really? I continue to <laughs> learn a very different way of, of learning Islam. Yeah. Um, one of my friends actually uses a thousand-year-old dictionary. Um, and she takes each word from the um, verses of the Quran mm-hmm. and says, what, is it, what does this word mean a thousand years ago? And she says, what we understand it today and how it's supposed to be interpreted is worlds of difference. Wow. And so I think that was the beauty in college is what I realized is how deep Arabic is and how um, it's just a rich language. Mm-hmm. And so it, the, the ability for somebody to um, mistranslate it and for people to misunderstand it mm-hmm. is huge. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it got me closer, again, to the religion. I'm, I'm not... F- a hundred percent a Muslim. I'm very spiritual, mm-hmm. but um, it really did open my eyes to this um, experience going through. I find it so school. interesting that you were taking yourself through this sort of like self exploration and deeper understanding. At the same time, the rest of the country is really paying a lot more attention to the part of the world your family comes from and the religion most of your family adheres to and and all of those things. It's sort of like there was scrutiny from the outside, but you were also self-scrutinizing a bit. Right, right. And where did that take you? I mean, I'm curious how prior to that, when people would ask where your family was from and you would say Syria, what did that mean to people then? Um, Before the revolution in 2011, most people didn't know where Syria was. And there's still people who don't. 
Um, so, I mean, I'd say Egypt, and they would understand because, you know, there are pyramids and there's a song, you know, right. walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, most people didn't know where Syria was from, where Syria was. Yeah. Especially in Arizona. Um, but it's... Um, so when people when you people would ask and, and you explain to them how do you how do you explain that to people, uh, you know, if we have no context, was it just sort of like it wasn't a thing? No, it's in the Middle East. And, yeah, and that was it. I wouldn't. It, it depends what time I was at because you know, obviously before September 11th it was a different story. Right. After September 11th it was definitely a different conversation that you would have, and you, and you know how to you know restrict yourself in some way. Because what do you mean by that? Because. I think it's really important to understand who you're talking to and see if they um, have some understanding of where 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 it is. I mean, I don't want to get people too uncomfortable because some people, you know, I'm the first Arab they ever met right. or I'm the first Muslim. So it's, you know, you want to walk people slowly like I'm just like you. We're friends. I'm Muslim. I don't wear a headscarf. That's it. So you act, you're actively thinking about that yeah. as you engage with people to make sure they're still comfortable right. with the way you're presenting yourself. Of course. That sounds exhausting. No, it's not. I think I think it's... Uh, I think it's actually a really wonderful thing hmm. to be two, from two parts of the world. Um, I think it's a way that makes me, I'm in this space where I'm able to understand, you know, Americans, mm -hmm. and I'm able to somewhat understand Arabs. Mm -hmm. um, but it makes me deeper, you know, it makes me like self-reflect of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm really happy about it, to be honest. Even though it it might sound exhausting, I, I actually think it's a wonderful thing. When you tell people now, in 2017, that your family is from originally from Syria, what does that mean to most people? What does that carry with it? How does that conversation usually go? <laughs> Again, it depends where I am. Yeah, I mean, I was um, in New York with a friend for dinner. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was a friend of a friend and I said you know my family's from Syria and he goes oh that's cool I said you know there's a war there he goes no I'm so sorry yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, like you were breaking the news to like, him yeah this is wow. the worst humanitarian crisis of our generation Do you, did you not hear about the, the war and no he didn't um, but yeah I mean it just again it depends where it's from I mean I get a lot of people who goes I'm so sorry what's happening there yeah you know, and and even that to me is sad. Yes, I'm I'm really happy that people understand the the tragedies that are unfolding in Syria. But mm -hmm. I don't want my parents' home country to be a place where it's just sad. That it only represents sadness. Right. It is such a beautiful country with so much history. Um. And you know, for people just to say, you know, I'm sorry. Um. When you say that, it's I. It's a it's a really sad, it's a really sad uh, response, I guess. When did you? Because um, I know you've done some work resettling refugees right. in in your home state of Arizona as well. When did that start to become of importance to you to do that kind of work? Yeah, so I'm going to go back to college. Yeah. Um, in college, when I started taking those Arabic courses, I realized that you know my Arabic is still not strong, and I really want to start that relationship with my grandma. Um, I applied for a scholarship to study Arabic in Qatar University. Mm -hmm. I was uh, selected as one of 40 students from around the world um, through Georgetown's. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, a, it's a program that Georgetown has um, 
they have about four seats at the Qatar University program. Okay. So, and that's in Doha, or yeah, yeah. in Doha. Okay. So I ended up living in Doha um, for three years. I learned Arabic, but my first year that I was there for the Arabic program, I was like, you know, I'm going to learn as much Arabic as I can. This mm-hmm. was in 2010, and I'm going to move to Syria and I'm going to go live with my grandma. And you know, I I found some nonprofits that I wanted to work for in Syria, and that was my plan. So the program's from 2010 to 2011, <laughs> and so. I was in Doha um, watching the Arab Spring unfold, you know, first Tunisia and then Egypt and, you know, and I was like praying it wouldn't come to Syria and I I thought there's no chance, you know, I would go to Syria as a little kid and my mm. parents would be like, don't ever talk about politics, you know, you can't talk about the, the regime and, you know, whatever you do, like, you know, people are so scared. So there's no way you were aware of that. Though. Yeah, that was part of your upbringing. Yeah, this is the situation. Every here, time I do yeah. not talk yeah. about this. Every time I'd go to Syria as as early as six years old. What did they say to you? Um, my parents were very very strict about it, saying if you ever get in a cab and they ask you what you think of Bashar al-Assad, don't say anything. <laughs> um, and they, because you know, I was a very social little girl, so I would talk to everybody, and right. <laughs> and so uh, they were like, just please, like whatever you do, get in the cab, don't talk to them about anything. They ask you what, how's the weather, you you look the other way. Um, did you ever ask them about that when you were outside of Syria? Then did you ever follow up to say like, why can't we talk about this? Or- you know, to be honest, I just thought it was just really weird. Yeah, it was you just know? sort of the way it is. Yeah, I just thought you know, Syria was like a different planet for me as I was a kid. Yeah, it was like. You know, in the beginning, again, I, I didn't like it. It was a place that was really loud. They smoked. Right. None uh, of your friends are there. Yeah. <laughs> everyone speaks this weird language, you know, <laughs> Arabic. And I, I didn't like it. But every single time I'd go back, and it was very sporadic, um, I started going, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful country. Mm-hmm. And uh, I fell more and more in love with it. So when I got that scholarship to, um, to Qatar, I was mm-hmm. like, I'm for sure going to go back to Syria because – you know, the, the streets of Damascus, like how old it is. Yeah. And I could just, you know, the the smell of the bread cooking, you know, the, the smell of the, the spices in the market, the the how genuine people are. You you don't get that anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, that's it. I'm going for sure. And, and then you're watching the then, Arab Spring spread. Yeah. And what do you think? It was... You know, being in Doha, because I was closely working with Al Jazeera, um, doing some research with them, um, seeing it and having a lot of my friends be in in the media as journalists and covering it, it was both exciting um, and and scary as well. You know, some of my friends would go to Egypt to cover it, and they'd talk about, you know, getting beat or something. but at at no po- I thought it was inspiring. But at no point did I, in the the early stages of the Arab Spring, did I think it was coming to Syria. You know, I talked to my parents. I'd be like, "Can you imagine this coming to Syria?" They'd be like, "No way, no Everyone way." Everyone said, "There's no way, no way." Yeah. And then when the conflict started, when the uprising began, when the, when Assad started cracking down harder and harder, what were you thinking? Well, it happened. I was there. Um, for a little vacation to see my grandma. And they said the first, there was like some um, protests that were happening inside Damascus, like Mm -hmm. February 15th, something like that. And that was actually the time I was there. Um, And then we were told that all the people who were protesting got beat up and they cracked down and that was it. 
So I went back to Doha, and then a few weeks later was my, um, uh, the few weeks later was the Arab Spring. You know, it started March 15th. So we watched, you know, so carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was panicking, you know, because I was um, planning a trip. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. I was planning a trip to, um, to see my, grandma, my aunt for mm-hmm. her birthday April 1st. So I was just watching intensely of what was going to happen. Um, and I remember, I think it was the end of March, where the president, Bashar al-Assad, came out and was, you know, like, you know, the, these people that are protesting, it's all fake, and it, this is, you know, a joke, and we're going to give you more money, and long live Syria. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that was really, that was unsettling. That was, you know, such a, that was a point where I was like, this is not going to go down well. You know, people are not that stupid to, to follow s- such, you know, speeches or such. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was it was empty words, basically. Um, regardless, I ended up going to Syria for the last time, and that was that was it. It was April 1st for about two weeks in 2011. That was um, the last time I visited. Um, and, it, and it's really sad, you know. It's really sad that my other grandma passed away just a couple months ago, and we, no one could visit her. No one could bury, help, you know, bury her in Damascus because... You know, we can't enter the country. Um, you know, it's in the last six years now. How do you process it? How knowing you have real memories in those streets, you have real people you can put on the ground in some of those places. How do you watch what's unfolding on television screens and, and on your phone? And how do you reconcile that? <laughs> I can't. I can't. I wake up every morning with pictures of dead children on my phone. I, you know, in the beginning you try to, you don't want to believe it, and you distance yourself. Um, and, you know, it's better just to hear the numbers, not to see the faces, because that's easier. But when you hear, like, this is somebody whose, you know, mother passed away, father passed away, children passed away, it hits closer to home. Because you're like, that could have been somebody, that could have been my relative. Um, So it got more and more intense. And I think this, um, what was the turning point, actually, for me of when I went from listening to the news um, about Syria and, and really just listening as, you know, anybody would to actively working on Syria was um, I ended up moving to Dubai and lived, I lived in Dubai and um, ended up uh, doing a campaign mm-hmm. um, to raise money for the White Helmets, the women rescue workers in Aleppo. Mm-hmm. So I told my donors, if you give me, you know, 15000 to to buy this ambulance for, for these, you know, heroes, essentially, um, in return, I'll climb Kilimanjaro. So we ended up doing it. This was uh, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I climbed Kilimanjaro in the honor of the White Helmets. And that entire experience of climbing the mountain, it's such... The mountain is physically exhausting. But what's even harder is the mental challenge that you have. Mm-hmm. And so every time my, bo- my body wanted to quit, of course, but my mind, you know, was the was dictating what I what I did and what I didn't do. So my mind would say, okay, I want to quit, I want to quit. And then I was like, I'm doing this out of choice, 
but they're the people of my parents my the homeland are fleeing violence with no choice you know and so that was literally what pushed me to the top you know thinking about women and children who had to flee mm-hmm. who are running with you know and I was well prepared with gear and 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 you know porters and, right. and whatnot but those people don't you know you see people that were fleeing you know the border with a bag with everything that they can fit in that bag and and barely any food and water and, and crossing for hopefully a better life let's talk about some of those people because you've done I took you away from this point earlier but you you have helped to resettle Right. Some some refugees in your home state of Arizona. Mm-hmm. What is that process like? What is it like when when a family arrives here, as you say, they have nothing but the things that they can carry and are in a completely foreign land with absolutely no roots or ties or context or or certainty mm-hmm. in their future? What is your role? What is that like for them and what do you do? Uh, so it's... To be a refugee is probably the one of the hardest things you can experience. I mean, these people are being uprooted from their homes to a foreign country where they don't speak the language. Um, so I think one of the most important things for to, to help refugees, especially Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. is you know the community, the Syrian community in Arizona wanted to give up you know many things. You know they were they were ready to give them furniture and clothes and stuff. And we did this huge uh, holiday drive where you know it touched six thousand lives of people that wanted to donate, mm-hmm. which is great. And um, the holiday program, there was this one um, Syrian refugee from Homs, and you know a fam- this for- this uh, American family came to their home to give them all these gifts. Mm-hmm. And they gave them a TV and some Xbox to their children. And they gave them, like, you know, all the things, that material that they, they needed. Yeah. Materialistic things. And the guy said, and I'll never forget it, he said, you know, you might have given me $1,000 worth of things. And I'm so grateful for it. But the most expensive thing that you gave me tonight was your friendship. Because it's, you know, tomorrow that these... These things can perish. These things can be destroyed and broken. Mm-hmm. But my friendship, my our relationship is something that you can never take away from me. You know, and there was not a dry eye in the room because it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the most, at, at the essence is when you start living for, when you start living for this, this space of like giving and, and being, you know, really investing in relationships mm-hmm. um, and not buying the things you know, not living in this materialistic world, but really like investing in people. Mm-hmm. I think you you experience such joy, you know, and, and I think that's what we that that whole experience of the holiday drive. That's what people felt. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was not you know f- they brought um, presents and they brought all these things uh, to these Syrian refugee families every weekend, but um, it was the most miraculous thing to see people just building friendships and hugging and not speaking a word of the same language but you know you a, a hug trans translates yeah you know a smile transcends any language or any barrier that we might have so. when so many people for every few people who have that experience there are so many others who have never come into contact will never come into contact with um, a refugee family um, don't know what that experience is like and then and then you hear the way the conversation goes, right, mm-hmm. on the national level. So we have a president 
uh, an administration that is basically called Syrian refugees a potential Trojan horse, yeah. right? That there's a national security link, right? We've explicitly attempted to ban specifically Syrian refugees right. indefinitely from entering. When it becomes a kind of a political football like that, how do you how do you change the conversation? Because now everyone has an opinion, right? Very strong one about this, right? I think what it should be our responsibility as Americans is go meet a Syrian refugee. Just take the time to go meet them, see what they're like, and you know, meet their children. Just hear from them, because I think that we're making something sound so scared because we don't know. And a lot of the people that were in this this uh, holiday drive that we had, um, a lot of Americans who had no experience with ever meeting uh, a Syrian, mm -hmm. when they met them, they were like, wow, they're so much like us. Wow, like, you know, their stories of of what they had to go through was, it was something I can't even fathom. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that broke down this barrier, you know, of, of what you know, the scary Syrian refugee, you know, the idea of it. But once you see it and you see these, you know, three-year-old kids laughing and, and playing with toys, you know, you you don't, you can't think of anything else. But there is that, as great as it would be, it's probably logistically impossible, right? How many millions of people who may hold these views or hold those fears actually have a chance to meet someone face-to-face? -face? And it at the heart of all of this, when we're talking about refugees, and I know a lot of people conflate immigration and refugees, and we have to understand refugee status is a very specific thing, a highly vetted, the most vetted of all right. folks who get to enter um, America. But that moral obligation is what we're talking about. For people who don't think America has that moral obligation, where do you begin with them? I think it's important for them to really dig deep within themselves and ask themselves, you know, what what are the things they want as a human? You know, and they want the basic things. You know, they want to feed their family. They want to have children. They want to, you know, make sure they live in a safe home. Um, and when they ask these, themselves these things, they have to realize that there are people elsewhere in the world, like, First of all, your neighbor wants the same thing, right? So, okay, so then you go from your neighbor. Your, the next state wants the same thing, right? So then why is that any different than the next country over and then the next country over? And then you look at the world. Like every human on this planet wants the same thing for their family. You know, and I think that's the part where, where people need to, to look at. And they may see that and say, that may be well and good, but why is it my responsibility Right. To use our tax dollars, to use our resources, our energy, potentially compromise our mm -hmm. safety, even though there's absolutely no statistical evidence behind any of that. <laughs> but when, when that argument is made, there's, you know what I'm saying? There's sort of a compassion barrier to right. some degree in this conversation. How, how do you break through that? Because that's, that's what's at stake, right? Right, of course. As much as I, I for those people that, that cannot see that, and they lack the compassion and empathy for what these people have gone through. What I tell them is that if you, you don't open your doors to these people, and these people are neglected in other countries, um, unfortunately, you know, it, when you when you don't give people opportunities and 
you know, you're talking about a child who, let's say, lost his parents. Mm-hmm. And he's in the middle of, um, you know, a neighboring country of Syria. And he lost everything. And he has no way to get an education, no f- future potential of getting a job mm-hmm. or a family. That child is, you know, so much more likely, you know, to be vulnerable to, let's say, a a group or terrorist organization that says, come, we'll give you all the security that you need. Mm. You're saying it's actually in our national security interest to want to help. Of course. Bring these children. Bring these children and give them that home. Let them feel love. Let them feel that, that, you know, that what America's values are. Because once the war ends in Syria, every single Syrian refugee wants to go back to their country. Every single one that I've talked to has said, I love America. I love what, they, what this country has done. American people are some of the nicest people. American people are some of the nicest people we've ever met. Mm-hmm. But we want to go back to our, our home, you know? But let's, let's talk about that for a second, because if, if you come to a place where you are welcomed and you, you make a life as you have to, right? If the circumstances demand, you just have to. You find a way to earn a living. You get your kids in school. You make a community, right? As human beings, it's what we do. Like, we make it work wherever we are. Who knows what's going to happen on the ground in Syria? There, it, at this point, there's no clear policy from any of the interested and involved parties. We don't know when that conflict will end. I think what scares a lot of people here, for those who are prone to those kinds of fears, is that why would anyone leave here? When you have a good life here and you're here, that temporary status argument doesn't really resonate, right? You're, you're, we're talking about making people Americans. We're talking about bringing them in and creating a home for them. Right. So what do you say to them? What I say to these people that, that want to believe that is, well, let them dig a little bit further back to their, their ancestry and see where their families came from. You know, we all came from somewhere unless we're Native Americans. So, I mean, that's what's beautiful about America. We have such rich diversity in this nation. And that is what made us so powerful. You know, that somebody from a foreign land can come into this country and become a citizen and build something that helps the country become better. I mean, that's that's a beautiful thing. And why would we want to take that away from other people? What do you think America should be doing when it comes to Syria and our, our involvement as a country there? Uh, in terms of Syrian refugees or in terms of our policy? Both, really. Syrian refugees, I think we need to really focus on changing the way we speak about it. You know, the, it needs to come from leadership. Yeah. You know, we need to... Um, I, I, it's, it hurts us when we close the doors on, on nations. It really does. I mean, that's, that's extremely... I'm scared when, when that happened because... People could retaliate against us, mm-hmm. you know. That it's it's people who want to exploit those kinds of divisions anyway. Right. Right. So I, I think that we need to change um, the way that we're speaking about the most vulnerable people in the world. You know, that is so important. And you think that sure. needs to come from the top? Very much so. What do you want to hear our leaders say? You know, we welcome we welcome those that want to come into our nation that are the most vulnerable people in the world. You know, we have the right programs. We'll vet you. You know, it's it's the way he it's the way you say it. Mm-hmm. You know, again, like you said, the refugee um, program is one of the most vetted programs that you know that there, that's out there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a it's a one to two year process. Um, so yeah, I mean, just just being a little bit more gentle to, to, to those people who have literally seen hell. Um, in terms of our policy, <sighs> I mean. 
It's, do you agree with the decision to, to launch airstrikes? It's been six, almost seven years where Bashar al-Assad has dropped barrel bombs, has dropped landmines, has dropped phosphorus, um, you know, chlorine, sarin gas, and has killed more than half a million people. You know, and this is the first time that any nation has even slapped his hand for doing it. I think it's sent a very, very strong message. It was, it was small, but it was very, very powerful and needed. Do you think President Obama should have done more? Of course. Of course. What would you have liked to have seen him do? 2013, I think he should have, um, you know, made the, the, you know, he said the red line. Everyone held him accountable to that. And, you know, he pulled away. And I, I understand that there might be some circumstances that we're unaware of um, and how complicated it is. But, I mean, if he have done, if Obama, President Obama just attacked one, you know, air, air base, just like Trump did, I think it would have changed the complete um, situation on the ground from then to now, mm-hmm. you know, it, from then it's became one of the worst refugee crises um, since the Cold War. So, and it's only getting worse. Do you think that we should launch more strikes? Do you think that we should become more militarily involved? Um, I mean, we're we're attacking ISIS, you know, um, and so that's not even a question, right? Right. But unfortunately, ISIS and Assad work together. So why is it even a question to when we think about attacking Assad? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the numbers, statistically speaking, half a million people um, have been killed in this war. Around 90% of the killings have been from Assad, have been from barrel bombs. So, yeah, what we did um, when we attacked uh, the, the, the air base in Syria, mm-hmm. launched 59 air, uh, airstrikes, was only one-tenth of the air bases in Syria. Mm-hmm. One-tenth. And the next day, um, there were a few airplanes that, that took off. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you really are concerned about a refugee crisis and you're concerned about security, uh, national security in the future, then it's really important that you have people feel safe in their own country, you know, and, and again, most of the, their attacks are from the sky. So get rid of that option. You know, let's get rid of all their air bases so that they can't drop bombs on children. You um, and, and your advocacy work and your your work to grow awareness, you you're very active on social media. Yeah. As well. How um, especially in this day and age, because the conversations can happen so quickly and take right. on different tones very quickly as well. What is that like? What kind of conversations do you have with people there as you try to engage them? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's the biggest sigh yet. <laughs> um, some people are, you know, it's it's really interesting when you do share stuff. Yeah. Um, I've gotten people that, that reshare my things that I wouldn't have thought would. So that's, to me, is I feel like I made a difference. If I if someone looked at my newsfeed and saw a story that touched them and they shared it and they touched more lives, even if it's one person, mm-hmm. I feel like I did something. You know, and it's hard for like like we talked about, it's hard for me to wake up every morning looking at my phone and looking at WhatsApp and seeing pictures of dead children. And, I, you know, I think a lot of Syrian activists feel like, what can we do? Mm-hmm. You know, we're sitting in this country where, you know, I'm so lucky. I wake up every morning to, to safe airspace. Uh, I, you know, I can open a fridge full of food. I, I've got electricity running 24-7 and running water. You know, I, I feel guilty. 
So the fact that like, yes, I can post something that can spread awareness, that can at least get one person to think, oh my God, like, you know, the, what's happening in Syria is a tragedy and at least, you know, give some kind of spotlight to the child that lost their lives today. I think that's a big deal. How do you make sure people don't grow numb to it, though? Because six years is a, is a long, as you well know, it's a long time. And eventually people get so used to, it sounds so cynical to say, but, you know, children in, in one place versus children in another. And for people who don't have context, don't know someone there, have a, you know, have a, have a tough time humanizing right. what's happening on the ground. How do you make sure people don't just grow kind of numb to it? It's hard because even Syrian activists, Syrian Americans uh, across the nation, are growing numb. Yeah, you know, it, it's 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 only it's only not natural, right? Because it's it's I can't wake up every morning crying. I have to get up. I have to go to work, and I have to get on with my day. Um, but we, I think, what's really important is to have a reality check for me. It's like you know, this just happened. What does this mean? You know, and I think it comes from. Yeah, just being aware, aware that, okay, there was 100 people who were killed today in a massacre in Idlib. You know, there was an airstrike. You know, what does that mean? How would I feel if that was my brother, sister, mother, father that passed away? You know, and, and so for that awareness, it drives me to, to continue to work. Um, but in terms of other people, I think it's always important um, when you put out messages is, is to show that like how important it is um, and show them that it's not just another child in Syria that that child was you know let's say Omran Dafnish or that's Alan Kurdi you know putting a face to uh, to a face to the, to the people who've lost their life I think that's really important you call yourself an activist a Syrian activist what are what are you working towards what do you want to see happen well, Syrian activist, um, I like to say that I help Syrian activists because what I do is really no nothing compared to what, let's say, my friends at the White Helmets are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you're talking about women and men who are responding to, to some of the worst tragedies or massacres that you've ever heard about, that to me, they're, they're heroes. You know, they're absolute heroes. So what I'm doing is just to amplify their stories on, on the ground. Um, Sorry, your second your question. I, what would you like to see happen? Oh, what would I like to see happen? Yeah. Me as as Lena, I'd like to see people in America to understand what's going on in Syria and to have more empathy. That's what that's what drives me. I want to raise awareness for for what's going on there. You know, and I take every single opportunity that I have. And it's made me completely like, <laughs> you know, the like totally not a person that can go out anymore and socialize. I'm totally socially awkward when I go out. Really? Why? Because this just consumes you? Yeah. I mean, especially in December when Aleppo fall. I mean, Aleppo fell. Like I people were like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm Aleppo. <laughs> like it was it was mind numbing. You know, it was it was I couldn't go out. You know, my friends wanted to go out to a bar or wanted to go out, you know, for dinner. And I, I just couldn't. You know, I couldn't because the conversation I just had on WhatsApp with one of my friends, she told me, you know, let's say my friend Hanati, she told me that she was stuck in her home, that barrel bombs and missiles were going off every few seconds, and the building next to her got demolished, and there are still people 
inside the rubble that are screaming for help and they can hear the sounds of children and men screaming and there's no one that can help them. And that to me haunted me for weeks because every time I try to close my eyes, I heard those sounds. You know, I, I, I heard what she heard because I was like, you know, do you think that's fair? Do you think it's fair that my, you know, I got this wonderful opportunity that was without, you know, me doing anything. I did not do anything to be born in America. Just like, you know, Joe Schmo wasn't, you know, we have no control of where we're going to be born or who we're born to or who we are. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with those people in Syria. They, they didn't choose it. You know, and I'm so, you know, I guess for me it, it hits closer to home because, again, my dad you know, was taking a train and then passed his, his friends that were like, we're going to America, you know, 50 years ago. And he's like, okay, that sounds great. You know, I'll get a green card. And, you know, came to America with $5 in his pocket and became a successful businessman, you know, and I was born here. And so I got an American passport, you know. But, again, if it wasn't for that one particular moment in history, it, m m me, my life would be completely different. So there's a sense of... Yes, I feel lucky and I'm happy to be in this country and to be safe. But then there's this part of me that's like, I feel guilty, you know, and I feel like every opportunity that I have, that I'm that I'm blessed enough to, to feel safe in, in this uh, in this nation is that I should help others that don't that are not so lucky. You know, that don't have, you know, every time a plane passes by, we don't think twice. For them, it's like, oh, okay, that's a, you know, um, whatever, a 16 or whatever that's going to come and, and potentially destroy our home. You know, and so I think that's really important um, for me just to, every day that I live here, every day that I live here, not only in the U.S., but here on the planet, that you make dif um, a difference, you know, whatever it is. Lena Arakawi. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each of our episodes is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable five days before they're released. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we have made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. And don't forget... Episodes are released five days early on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.